Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. So I was reading a book about how to pastor, or not how to pastor, how to preach sermons. And uh, uh, it just, you know, I like to kind of... I like reading those kind of books because it's just I'm always trying to improve my skills. And one of the things that the book mentioned is uh, you, you should be able to sum up your message in a theme. Uh, and you know when you and I think you know it, it's probably written from someone who does uh, topical, more topical sermons. And so of course it's easy to have a theme there. Uh, but you know for us we go chapter by chapter. Um, and, uh, so it's a little bit more of a challenge, well, maybe not necessarily, but anyway, so I'm sitting there thinking what could be the theme of Daniel chapter nine. And what really struck me as I was just, just reflecting on it is the theme I think that we'll see here in this chapter is it's the heart that hears God speak. And I don't know about you, but I, want to hear God speak to me. You know, I want, I want, I want to hear him. I want, I want him to, to, to speak to me. I want to have a, that, that two-way relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And, uh, and so hopefully um, you do too. And uh, so as we look at this chapter, we'll be kind of pointing out some things that, that maybe will, will give you some more uh, help in, in, in reaching that goal of, of being a heart that hears God speak. And so first of all, let's read Daniel chapter 9. It says, in the first year of Darius, the son of Azarias, uh, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make request by prayer and supplication with fastings, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. We have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name, uh, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers and all the peoples of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us, shame of face, as it is to this day. To the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those far off, and all the countries to which you have driven them, because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. O Lord, to us belong shame of face, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, through whom, uh, though we have rebelled against him, we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he had set before us, by his servants, the prophets. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. And he has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our judges who judged us by bringing upon us a great disaster for under the whole 
uh, heaven, such has never been done as what has been done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us. Yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our our iniquities and understand your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept the disaster in mind and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works which he does, though we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made yourself a name as it is to this day, We have sinned. We have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because of our sins, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. Now, therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications. And for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay. For your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. Now, while I was speaking, praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord, my God, for the holy mountain of my God. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. And we'll stop there. We'll come to the vision there in a little bit. But I want to first take a look at this first portion here of this chapter to understand the heart of Daniel, who heard God speak to him. Uh, you know, so what are the qualities of the heart that hears God speak? And I think one of the first things that kind of jumps out to us in this chapter is that it's a heart that is in God's Word. You know, what does that mean, to be in God's Word? Well, first of all, it means to be reading God's Word. You know, Daniel uh, 9, verse 2 It says that Daniel read and studied the Scripture. Um, And you think about it, what did he have to read? Well, we know he at least read the book of Jeremiah, the scroll of Jeremiah. That's At least he had that. He may not have had a whole lot of other Scriptures, but he had that because this is where he got this understanding um, from Scripture. Um, So he was reading the scroll of Jeremiah. The next thing he did was he studied the scroll. He didn't just read it, but he studied it. And as a result of that, he understood by his studying the scriptures that the number of years specified by God for their captivity was almost complete. Probably what uh, Daniel read was probably Jeremiah 25, verse 11 through 12. Let me read it to you. It says, And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment. 
And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then it will come to pass when the 70 years are completed that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, says the Lord, and I will make it a perpetual desolation. Interesting to me is Daniel evidently believed in the literal interpretation of Scripture. He read it and it said 70 years, and he said, hmm, it's almost been 70 years since we've been in Babylon. Um, You know, if Daniel were here today, he'd probably be labeled an an extreme fundamentalist. You know, I can't believe you you believe the literal interpretation of Scripture, and yet Daniel did. So Daniel read and Daniel understand God's Word, and as a result of that, he gained an understanding from God's Word. I love what the psalmist says in Psalm. All right, is that better? Okay. So Daniel read God's Word, and uh, Daniel studied God's Word. He gained an understanding from it, and then he believed God's Word. You know, you need to believe what God's Word says. Hebrews 11.6 tells us, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And Daniel read God's Word, Daniel studied God's Word, and Daniel believed God's word. Think about this. He had a childlike faith in the word of God. I mean, he took it as it says it and believed it. That's the way a child believes an adult, right? Your children, your little children. You know, it's funny. When my kids were younger, I, you know, I could tell them just about anything and they'd believe it. You know, I remember one time we were walking through Corey Hill Park and and we got up into this place and it's it just kind of a weird place. I don't know if, even know it's, it's still there, but it's I think there was a quarry there or something. Well, Quarry Hill, it makes sense. But anyways, uh, um, <laughs> and I told my kids, because I was born in Canada, and I used to have an alien card, a resident, I was a resident alien, right? And so I remember telling them, you know, your dad's an alien. And they're like, <gasps> and I'm like, yeah. I mean, I even got a card from the government, you know? <laughs> and, and, uh, and uh, you know, but you can tell kids anything, you know, because they believe it. And... Uh, Daniel had a childlike faith in God's Word. Well, a child takes the word of an adult as, as, as is, um, and he trusts the adult. Your kids trust you when you tell them things. You know, it's only when that trust has been broken, when they find out you weren't really an alien, you know, that eventually a child learns to become skeptical, right? But in the beginning, man, they just take whatever, you know, that trusted adult says, and they, they take it verbatim, and they, and they trust it. And that's what Daniel did. God wants you and I to take him at his word and believe him, just like a trusting child would. That's exactly what Daniel did. Daniel read God's word. Daniel believed God's word. And then he did something else. He obeyed God's word. He responded to it. How? Well, he prayed. Daniel undoubtedly also read Jeremiah 29.10 through 14. It says this, For thus says the Lord, After 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me, and go to pray and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. 
I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I've driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you to the place from which I caused you to be carried away captive. So Daniel read that. And he understood that the time is coming when, when we're going to be freed from Babylon. We're going to be able to go back into to Jerusalem. And uh, as Daniel is reading the word, he's believing the word, he responds to the word because God's word says, you're going to call to me, you're going to pray to me, and I'm going to answer to you. And so what did Daniel do? Man, he started praying. See, the second quality of a heart that hears God speak is a heart that prays. Now, we know from Daniel chapter 6, verse 10, when we were in that chapter, that Daniel prayed on his knees in his upper room with the windows open towards Jerusalem three times a day. And it says that it was his custom since the early days. I mean, that was a habit that he had ingrained in himself. He did it all the time. So Daniel was a man of prayer. Well, I love this passage of Scripture that we just read because we really are given a glimpse into the prayer life of Daniel here. This is a model prayer. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful prayer. I'm, I'm so thankful that the Holy Spirit recorded it for you and I to, to be able to glean from. And so in verse 3, it says that Daniel, uh, you know, he started fasting with, um, um, and making requests by prayer with supplications, with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Basically, Daniel prepared himself spiritually through the putting on of sackcloth and and fasting and and putting on ashes. John Walvoord said this, While this is not necessary, Daniel did everything he possibly could to put himself in a favorable position for prayer. Fasting and the wearing of sackcloth and ashes. Basically, that was a sign of humility, and it was a sign of grieving and mourning over sin. And then in verse 4, Daniel confesses his sin, and the sin of his people. Now what strikes me in that aspect of it is that although Daniel, of course, was a man, and he was born in sin, he was a sinner just like each of us, the Bible never records any specific sins that Daniel committed. Daniel did not participate in Judah's rebellion. Daniel was a man, a young man at the time, that loved God and served God and was faithful to God. But the closer Daniel drew to the Lord, the more God's glory and holiness was revealed to Daniel. And the more Daniel saw and understood God's holiness, the more Daniel became aware of his own sinfulness. And compared to God's holiness, man, Daniel was no better than the worst sinner. Paul had the exact same experience. The Apostle Paul who wrote you know, so much of the New Testament, a man who was just on fire for Jesus, unstoppable in sharing the gospel, who loved the Lord, laid down his life for the Lord. And yet in Ephesians 3.8, he calls himself the le- less than the least of all the saints. How close are you to the Lord this morning in your own devotional life? If you acknowledge you're a sinner... But deep down, you think, well, you know what? I'm really not as bad as, and you can fill in the blank. Somebody, somebody you can say, well, at least I'm not as bad as that person. If that's your heart this morning, you don't have as great a revelation of God's holiness as Paul and Daniel had. It's a good barometer for us to check where are we at. You know, if we compare ourselves to others and we go, you know what? Yeah, I'm, I'm bad, but I'm not as bad as that person. Then we really don't have a full grasp on God's holiness. 
Because when we have a full understanding of God's holiness, man, we realize, man, none of us, none of us are worthy. We're all scum. So Daniel prayed to the Lord. Verse 4 says, And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps His covenant and mercy with those who love Him and with those who keep His commandments. We have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from Your precepts and Your judgments. What was Daniel's confession? We've departed from your precepts and judgments. Now, precepts were God's laws. And judgments, basically what God's word says is right and what God's word said is wrong. There's things that God says, this is right and this is wrong. And Daniel said, man, we've departed from that. We've walked away from that. Verse 6, Neither have we heeded your servant, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers and all the people of the land. His confession, we've ignored your servants, the prophets. We've basically blown off your warnings, God, about the direction that we were heading. Because God said, you know, I've sent you prophet after prophet trying to get you to repent, Judah, to the nation of Judah. And they they just wouldn't listen to the prophets. In fact, they tried to kill some of those prophets. Verse 7. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us shame of face as it is to this day. To the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those far off in all the countries to which you have driven them because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. O Lord, to us belongs shame of face to our kings and our princes and our fathers because we have sinned against you. Basically, Daniel's words there are, God, you are righteous, but we are unfaithful and we've just sinned against you. Look at verse 9. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against Him. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in His laws, which He set before us by His servants the prophets. Basically, God, you're merciful and you're forgiving, but man, we've disobeyed your voice. Verse 11. Yes, and all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. Basically, Daniel there acknowledging that we're reaping the curse that you warned us about if we turned away from you. You know, all through their history, God gave them the the, the blessings. I'm going to bless you if you follow me. But if you don't follow me, if you turn your backs against me, if you start adopting the, the, the habits of the nations around you, this is what's going to befall you. And basically, Daniel's saying, hey, we've reaped that because we've turned away from you. We've ignored your warnings. Verses 12. And he has confirmed his words which he spoken against us and against our judges who judged us by bringing upon us a great disaster. For under the whole of heaven, uh, such has never been done as what has been done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. He's saying, God, your word is confirmed. The promises you made to us, if we sinned against you, it has come to pass. 
You know, often, often you and I, we love to look at God's promises when he promises to bless us. You know, we put those, those, those verses on our refrigerators. You know, we memorize those verses. Maybe you have a bumper sticker that has a verse like that. Um, we look to God to fulfill those promises. But you know, God is faithful to fulfill other promises as well. Galatians 6, 7 says, Do not be, de- excuse me, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. God's faithful to bless us, but he's also faithful to punish his children, to chastise us if we, if we ignore him, if we turn our backs on him. Verse 14, Therefore the Lord has kept the disaster in mind and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works which he does, though we have not obeyed the voice. He's saying, God, you're righteous in all your ways. Even in the punishment, even in the chastisement, God, you're righteous. Verse 15, And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made yourself a name, as it is this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. God, you've been so good to us. You delivered us from bondage in Egypt. You gave us your name, but we've done wickedly. We've sinned. You know, Daniel had confessed his sins and the sins of the people. And and that's an important thing for you and I to do is to confess our sins to the Lord God. But then by faith, you know, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from our iniquities. It's important to confess our sins. But then we need to, by faith, understand that Jesus Christ forgives us. And then we need to buy. Then and then by faith, we can we can beg God's mercy. That's exactly what Daniel did there, verses sixteen through nineteen. O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people uh, are a reproach to all those around us. Now, therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications. And for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your your ear uh, and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. O Lord, Hear, O Lord, forgive, O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your own city and your people that are called by your name. Verse 17 is really the heart of Daniel's plea there. You know, there were so many needs. Jerusalem had been destroyed, right? The temple lay in ruins. God's people were scattered, uh, you know, throughout the face of the earth, not just in Babylon, but all over. And they had brought shame on God's name. There were so many needs that they had. But his simple plea is this. God, we need your face to shine upon us. We need you. Spurgeon said this. Oh, that we might learn how to pray so that God should be the subject as well as the object of our supplications. Oh, God, thy church needs thee above everything else. A poor, little, sick, neglected child needs 50 things. But you can put all those needs into one if you say that the child needs its mother. 
So the church of God needs a thousand things, but you can put them all into one if you say the church of God needs her God. You know, this morning, I don't know about you, I've got a laundry list of things that I need. But this morning is my cry, is your cry, the cry of our heart. Lord, I've got this and this and this I need you to do. Or is it, Lord, I just need you. I just need your presence. I need your face to shine upon you, upon me. There in verse 18 through 19, Daniel says, For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. I don't know how many of you know who Rich Mullins is, the musician. You guys know who he is? You know, he was the, he had the, he was the, 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 the writer of the song, Our God is an Awesome God. That song was really popular, sung by Amy Grant in the, in the 80s. And uh, he had a band called uh, Rich Mullins and the Ragamuffin Band. And I used to, I didn't know much about that. And I, I thought, that's such a strange name for a band, a ragamuffin band. What does that mean? And uh, just last week, Therese and I saw uh, on Netflix, they have the movie Ragamuffin. And it's the story of, of Rich Mullins. Um, and uh, anyways, in one scene in this movie, uh, he meets in a coffee in a, in a diner with this uh, this old pastor, an old pastor of a church that was also a recovering alcoholic. And they're just having a conversation. And uh, the guy makes a mention about the ragamuffin gospel. And Rich, in the, in the, in the, in the movie, goes, well, what's a ragamuffin gospel? And he says this, ragamuffins are the unsung assembly of saved sinners who are little in their own sight and aware of their brokenness, powerlessness before God. A ragamuffin knows he is only a beggar at the door of God's mercy. I thought, wow, now I understand why he called his band the Ragamuffin Band. I'm a ragamuffin this morning. We're probably all ragamuffins here this morning. That's because, you know, we cry out for God's mercy, but it's not based on our righteousness. It's just based on his righteousness. But we have nothing. We have nothing to stand before God and say, Lord God, at least look at what I've done. No, we have nothing. We're beggars at the door of God's mercy. And then now, the heart that's been reading God's word, understanding God's word, obeying God's word, the heart that prays, now God answers Daniel. Verse 20. Now while I was speaking and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked to me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. So Daniel's you know, God answers Daniel's prayer and sends the angel Gabriel. The angel had appeared, you know, Gabriel had appeared to Daniel in another chapter earlier that we had studied. You know, James 5.16 tells us the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Daniel's prayer was effective, and it certainly was fervent. But God was ready to answer even as Daniel began to pray. I love that. Even at the moment you started praying, God provided an answer and sent the, uh, the angel Gabriel. You know, God knows 
your and my needs even before we ask them. We go, well, if that's the case, then why do we need to pray if he even knows our needs? You see, God wants us to pray to bring those needs to him because he wants to unite our hearts with him through, his, through prayer. You know, sometimes you might have a difficulty with someone, a coworker or whatever, and, and you know, you just have this, a hard time with that person. If you do, I want to encourage you to start praying for them because as you pray, God starts changing your heart towards them. And prayer is actually, it's, it's a worship of faith too, looking to God to, to meet those needs, looking to God to answer prayer. And so Daniel, he's praying God answers his prayer, sends the angel Gabriel. And uh, Daniel's prayer is not only answered, but the angel was sent to give Daniel skill to understand. And now uh, Daniel here uh, is given a vision that is so incredible concerning uh, the last days and concerning you know, his time on till, till the Messiah comes. You know, it's interesting because Daniel here, the angel Gabriel says that, Daniel, you're greatly beloved by the Lord. And as a result of that, he was given detailed visions, right, regarding the, the end times. In the, that's in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the apostle John is the apostle who was greatly loved by the Lord. And he too was given detailed visions regarding the end times. I think it's fascinating. So verse 24, now he's received this vision. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So Gabriel declared 70 weeks. Um, That word seven... uh, uh, weeks there is the Hebrew word. It's actually heptads, and it literally means sevens. A translator here put weeks, but basically what it's saying is there's seventy sevens, seventy units of seven, and it's almost universally understood that the seventy uh, sevens are seventy seven-year periods, so they're weeks of years. Um, and they're prophetic years. And what, what I mean by prophetic years? Well, they're prophetic in the sense that the Jewish calendar was 360 days long. You know, our calendar is 365 days long, but the Jewish calendar was 360 days. And uh, according to Gabriel, six major events characterize these 70, um, 70 weeks, which comes out to 490 years. And uh, so he says there, uh, 70 weeks are determined for your people, for your holy city, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Uh, The first characteristic or the first thing that will be occurring in that period of time is to finish the transgression. Now what this probably refers to, because we're not really told in the vision here, but it probably refers to Israel's tendency to apostatize, to turn away from God. And we know that even right now, Israel as a nation, you go to Israel today, it's a very secular nation. They've turned their backs on God. They don't recognize Jesus, their Messiah. But at the second coming of Christ, right before the thousand-year reign of Christ, the millennium, all Israel is going to be saved. 
the nation of Israel, they're going to turn, they're going to be restored to God at that time. The second thing that's identified here is to make an end of sins or bringing sin to its final judgment. That's going to occur at the end of the millennium. The third, to make reconciliation for iniquity. That word reconciliation is the word kafar, and it means to cover. And, you know, the, the Jewish people, they did animal sacrifices year after year to cover over their sins. It never really removed their sins, but it covered over their sins. And that, you know, the Day of Atonement, that was the day that they would do that. You think about that. That's Yom Kippur. And today, the Jewish people, they celebrate the Day of Atonement. They celebrate Yom Kippur. But there's one key ingredient that's missing from their, from their celebration, their, their, uh, their Day of Atonement. And that's the animal sacrifice. There's no blood that's being shed for sin. And, uh, you know, for you and I, the believer in Jesus Christ, you know, Jesus was a reconciliation. He, his, his blood reconciled us to God, his death on the cross. For Israel, nationally, they're not recognizing that until the end of the tribulation. Uh, You know, it's interesting, when you get to the book of Revelation, um, it's good to have this understanding of the book of Daniel when you start looking at the book of Revelation, because it just, it gives you a much better understanding of, of the prophecies that are in the book of Revelation. The fourth thing, to bring in everlasting righteousness. For you and I as believers, right, we, we cling to what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, 10, 21. It says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's no longer my righteousness, but it's Christ's righteousness live, you know, within me. Then fifth, to seal up vision and prophecy. And that, I think, is referring to the completion of the Bible. You know, when the New Testament was completed, there's not going to be any more new revelation. That's going to be sealed up. And then sixth, to anoint the most holy. Now, that could be referring to the millennial temple, because we know that there's going to be a temple in the millennium. Um, Or it could be referring to New Jerusalem, because after the millennium, there there will no longer be a need of a temple, because Jesus will reign in New Jerusalem. That will be God's dwelling place throughout eternity. And then in verse 25, he says, Therefore, know therefore and understand, that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. So Daniel here, he's given a trigger or a starting point of when these 490 years would begin. And the the trigger is the command to restore and build Jerusalem. Now we know from history, we also know from the book of Ezra, that Cyrus gave the command to rebuild the temple. Um, But the command to rebuild the city and the walls of Jerusalem came about 90 years later by King Artaxerxes. And that's recorded in Nehemiah chapter 2. In fact, in Nehemiah chapter 2, we're told the exact date when that decree happened, or when it was issued. And we're told in Nehemiah 2 that it was the first of Nisan. In, uh, and we know that from history, because it's the 20th year of Artaxerxes, that it was 445 B.C. So on our calendar, that would be uh, March 14th, 445 B.C. So we know exactly when that 490 years would start, March 14th, 445 B.C. 
And then he says, from the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince would be seven weeks, which seven sevens, and 62 weeks, or 62 sevens. And so that, if you add up the seven and the 62, you end up with 69 seven-year periods or 483 years. Now, if you take those 483 years and you divide it by 360 days, which is the prophetic year, you end up with 173,880 days. Now, you take that and you go back to March 14th, uh, 445 B.C., and it says until Messiah the Prince would be 173,880 days. Well, from March 14th, 445 B.C., 173,880 days brings you to April 6th, 32 A.D. That's the day that Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, where you and I celebrate as Palm Sunday. That's interesting because the 69 weeks is broken up by 7 weeks and then 62 weeks. And go, well, what's the deal with that? Well, the first 7 weeks, which would correspond to 49 years, it says the streets and the wall would be built but in troublesome times. And according to John Wolvert, it says this was fulfilled in the aftermath of Nehemiah building the wall of Jerusalem and requiring one out of ten in Israel to build a house in Jerusalem. You read the book of Nehemiah, and it, was, it wasn't easy for the pilgrims. When they, they got the decree to come back, you know, Artaxerxes blessed them, basically, and, and, and helped them and gave them supplies and stuff. But when they got to Jerusalem, man, it was, it was trouble. You know, Sanballat and all these people were trying to... to uh, they didn't want them in the land, basically. And so there was all kinds of problems going on for Nehemiah and, and, uh, during that period of time. Verse 26, it says, And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. So after the 62nd week, which would be actually 69 weeks, because he had the seven before, um, it says the Messiah would be cut off, but not for himself. And that is speaking about and prophesying the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And it says, And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And that, we know, was fulfilled in 70 A.D. when Titus Vespasian destroyed the temple. You know, when I, when I try to understand these weeks, because it, it, I gave you a lot of facts and figures in a short period of time, and I apologize for that, but, you know, it's, it's almost like God has this stopwatch and it's the stopwatch of his dealings with the nation of Israel. And so he started the stopwatch when the command came for, from Artaxerxes to rebuild and restore Jerusalem and rebuild the city. And, uh, and so he's, he's counting the, the weeks of years. He's counting the years. And he gets to the uh, 69th week, which is when Messiah was cut off. And it's like he's hit the stop button on the stopwatch. And then we have a missing week. And there's this period of time that you and I are living in right now that's known as the church age. And in the Old Testament, the church age was a mystery to the prophets. It's been revealed, of course, in the New Testament. But we're living in this, there's this gap. And it's like that stopwatch. It's just been, there's just one more week 
or one more seven-year period to be completed. And it's like God's just got his thumb on the thing, just waiting. And at some point, which I believe is in the very near future, that God's going to hit that button again in that last seven weeks on that timer for Israel is going to start counting down again. Verse 27 says, Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of an abomination of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. So that 70th week has not been fulfilled yet, but it will be when Antichrist comes on the scene and makes a covenant with Israel for one week or one seven-year period. That time is known as the time of Jacob's trouble. It's the, the great tribulation as it's described in, in the book of Revelation. You know, the religious Jews of Israel today are ripe for the coming of the Antichrist. I've mentioned this many times before. If you don't know, go to uh, templeinstitute.org. There's the, the, the Temple Institute in Jerusalem. You can go there. If you're ever in Jerusalem, you can go and you can visit. You can walk in there, and they have clothing. that they, They've gone through the, the Old Testament, and they've, they've basically reconstructed the clothing that the priests will wear. They've made the, all the gold pans and utensils that are used in the sacrifice. They're trying to, to breed a, a red heifer because they have to have the ashes of a red heifer to sprinkle on on the new temple that they're waiting for to to cleanse it so that they can start offering sacrifices again. Um, And and so they are getting everything. In fact, they're even training people with the name of Kohen because that's actually, that goes back to the Levitical priesthood. Um, they're they're, They're basically training up priests that are ready once they get the once they get the the green light to have a third temple built in Jerusalem they've got everything in place to start sacrificing animals because the Jewish the religious Jews know that they need to have a blood sacrifice to cover sins and they haven't had it for two centuries or two millennium you know um so the Jews are ripe for uh the coming of the antichrist because the Bible says that when the Antichrist comes, he's going to make a peace covenant with Israel. He's going to enable them to rebuild their temple. And they're going to think that he's the Messiah. But Daniel was told in the middle of the week, or three and a half years into it, and again, it's prophetic years, so I don't know if you can really go on our calendar and go, it's exactly, you know, it's, it's prophetic. So, um, But I would say it's pretty close to what our calendar is. Um, but anyways, in the middle of that week or three and a half years into it, Antichrist is going to make an offering or make an end to sacrifices and offerings, and he's going to stand in that temple and demand to be worshipped. Now, Matthew 24, Jesus refers to that. He says, therefore, when you see, 2415, if you're taking notes, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. And then he explains to them what they are to do. Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2 verses 3 and 4 says this, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, for you and I as believers in Jesus Christ, 
we know and we believe and we understand that Jesus is God. Right? He's God incarnate, God who became man, who suffered on the cross for our sins, died in our place, and arose from the dead and went into heaven. We understand that. That's the gospel. That's the, the nutshell of the gospel, basically. And we know that Jesus is God. But the Jewish person, by and large, does not believe that the Messiah is God. They believe that the Messiah is going to be a man just like Moses. So they're looking for this man who's going to lead them in rebuilding a temple. And here comes the Antichrist. And he's going to, make, he's going to be a smooth talker. He's going, to, he's going to somehow get all these Arab nations to agree to allow Israel to build a temple somewhere on the Temple Mound. And, and it's going to be, they're going to look at this guy and they're going to go, he's the Messiah. See, they are ripe. They are, they're, everything is falling into place according to God's divine plan. And then when he stands up halfway through that covenant, that, that, seven, or that three and a half year period, when he stands up in the temple and says, I'm God, worship me, then they're gonna, their eyes are going to be open at that point. And that's when, that's when the, the wrath starts happening. That's when uh, Antichrist is going to try to wipe out Israel, motivated, of course, by Satan himself. So you can see how ready they are to be deceived by the Antichrist, man. It's just falling into, plan, into place. And all of this, amazingly, was revealed to Daniel. And I believe it was because Daniel was a man who read and studied God's word. He believed it. He applied it. And he was a man of prayer, seeking the heart of God. And I want to encourage you this morning. If you want God to reveal more of himself to you, to speak to you, maybe it's like, Lord, I just need to hear you. I want to encourage you and get in God's word. Read it. First of all, you have to read it. Secondly, study it. But then more importantly, believe it and apply it in your life. As you're reading God's word and, and God's word says something, man, just say, Lord, how can I apply that in my life? And allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you, to guide you and to... Uh, to uh, to uh, put it into practice. You know, we want to be uh, not only hearers of the word who deceive ourselves. It's pretty easy to do that. We want to be people who not only hear the word, but we want to be people who do the word. And then, man, I want to encourage you to start praying. Start getting your heart in tune with God's heart. Because as you and I do that, the Lord God will speak to you. You know, he says if, he's a rewarder of those who dil- diligently seek after him. And I believe God wants to answer our prayers. He wants to speak to us. He's just waiting for us to get our hearts right with him. So I want to encourage you in that this morning. And this morning we're going to have communion. So whoever's uh, leading us in communion, you guys can come on up.
Yeah. 